going to put my timer on because I have a habit of talking too much. I don't know if Okay. Hi, everybody. Nice to be with you. I'm sorry for those of you that I haven't met yet, but hopefully at some point in the next few months, I will. So there's a few phrases that are repeated throughout that passage we just read, aren't there? And one of them is this phrase that stand, stand firm, standing firm, stand. It's repeated several times. And I wonder if you think about your life, if there's a moment or a couple of moments where you're like, yeah, I really stood firm. I would not be moved. I knew I was right. And I I would stand firm in what I thought about. And um, I was thinking about my own life and trying to think of a good example for you of where I stood firm. And I've got one from when I was six years old that I think you might enjoy. I've got two older brothers, and uh, anyone with two older brothers in the room? Wendy, you're with me, aren't you? Uh, You know how it is. If you've got two older brothers, you know that you have to stand firm. You have to fight for what's right. You're often saying that is not fair. And this is one of those situations. So my oldest brother is six years older than me. So he was about 12 at the time of this story, I think. And um, I don't know what he had done, but all weekend, he had annoyed me. He had been frustrating me. He had been treating me badly. Whatever it was, I can't remember. It was quite a common scenario, I think, in my life. So anyway, but it got to the point where he needed to be taught a lesson. This was not good enough. I was going to stand my ground and show him he could not treat me the way he was treating me. So somehow, I'm not quite sure how, but I managed to lure him into the shed in our garden. And I also managed to get out the shed before he realized and bolt the door and he was stuck and the lunch call came from my mum and dad for Sunday lunch Sundays were always full of lots of people friends family so we all sat down for lunch someone must have said where's Adam and everyone said "Mm, I don't know carried on eating I was not going to give away where he was so we had our main course it was delicious he missed out And then I think before pudding, probably one of my parents must have said, has anyone seen Adam? And I had a choice in this moment. Do I stand firm and continue to teach him a lesson or do I give up my ground and let him have pudding? And you can imagine I was not going to let him get away with it. So no, I had no idea where he was. Who knew? Let's carry on, have our pudding. So we had our pudding and he was still locked in the shed. And um, after pudding, they must have started looking for him. I'm sure they questioned again, has anyone seen him? Where is he? And I did not give him up. I would not tell anyone. I stood my ground. I stood firm. And um, they must have found him. And I actually don't really remember the consequence that I received for this bad behavior. My dad was quite good at telling us off, but if you could make him laugh, then you often got away with it. And I think I probably made him laugh enough that the bigger consequence was from my brother than my parents. So there you go, that's me standing firm, age six, teaching my brother a lesson. I'd love to say that he changed, but I don't think he did, so there were many other lessons to be taught and dealt out over the years, and it continues. Um, But um, I don't know if anybody has read the book Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson. You can put your hand up if you want to feel like a well-read person. And um, it's a brilliant book, and I'd recommend it. But he, at the very beginning of the book, um, shares about a pastor in Germany called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who some of you will have heard of. And um, he talks about um, him, and he was in Germany in the 1930s as the Nazi party begins to kind of rise, and they realize what they're about and some of the things they're doing. And lots of churches, sadly, ended up sort of capitulating and siding with the Nazi party for multiple reasons. 
things. And then the churches kind of became institutions, I guess, of propaganda and speaking in favor of what Hitler was doing. But Bonhoeffer gathered pastors around him and kind of had this secret seminary. They were trying to train people up, essentially, to hold their ground, to stand firm, to not allow the church to sort of drift into this cultural thing that was happening, to stand firm. And um, there's a story of um, one of his friends that John Tyson writes about who kind of says to him, like, why are you being so intense? Like, why are you being so sort of, you know, serious about this? And um, I'll read it to you because it's better if I use his words, not mine. And it says, Bonhoeffer led Niesel up a small hill to a clearing from which they could see in the distance a vast field and the runways of a nearby squadron. German fighter planes were taking off and landing and soldiers moved hurriedly around in purposeful patterns like so many ants. Bonhoeffer spoke of a new generation of Germans training whose disciplines were formed for a kingdom of hardness and cruelty. It would be necessary, he explained, to propose a superior discipline if the Nazis were to be defeated. You have to be stronger than these tormentors, he said. Bonhoeffer was determined that the church would stand firm. In the face of evil, he didn't want the church to be weakened and he called them to stand firm. I wonder how often we think about standing firm, about resisting some of the things that we see that aren't good. For Bonhoeffer, it was really clear, wasn't it, who his enemy was. He knew exactly who it was he was fighting and what he was doing. And for us, it's a little bit harder sometimes to figure out, well, what are we standing firm against? What is the ground we're kind of holding on to? But it's really clear in this, in this letter that Paul wrote, in the passage that we read, that he is encouraging us to stand firm, to hold our ground. And um, in, I, I, I read the Amplified Bible, if anybody else does. And in that, when it's describing standing firm, it says being in your place, fully prepared, immovable, and victorious. That's what it kind of means for us to like hold our ground, stand firm. And um, I feel, it sounds like I read books all the time, and I actually don't, but for some reason, everything's kind of come together in this talk, so just for a minute, let me sound really clever. So I read a book, another book, um, by a guy called Watchman Nee, and um, he kind of wrote about Ephesians, and the title of the book is called Sit, Walk, Stand, and it basically describes the entire journey that we've been on as a church as well. So he talks about the first few chapters of Ephesians, Um, it's like rich with description of what blessings we've got, like what it is to be part of a church. We're sat in heavenly places with Christ. We're filled with the Spirit. We're blessed with every blessing. This is what Nee um, is referring to when he says sit. It's like sitting in the promises of Jesus, like knowing what God's called us to be and to do and just like getting used to his presence and that our life comes from sitting with Jesus. Everything we do is coming from that place. And then the next few chapters, which you guys who have been kind of following the journey with us know, are about walking out our faith. What does it actually look like to kind of take hold of these promises, these blessings, and live in a way that is different, that reflects God's love for us, looks like Jesus. And um, that's the walking part, like walking it out. And then the final part of this book is stand. So even though it's quite a small part of Ephesians, it's only like 10 verses, um, it's kind of, Nee talks about it being equally important that we learn to sit, walk, stand. So um, 
I want to encourage us as we kind of go into the next little bit of what I want to talk about to really think about what it looks like for us to like stand firm and hold our ground. And the really amazing part of what Watchman Nee talks about is he's just really excited to say that we're not trying to get new ground. It's not like we're trying to like go on a battle and fight for ground. He's like, you've got the ground. Jesus won it. He's done the battle for us. He came, he died, he is resurrected. Therefore, the ground is ours and we just stand in the victory. We stand firm in Christ's victory which is great, isn't it? Yes. I forgot to tell you at the beginning that I work with young people and young people give stuff back. So if I say something, they're like, uh-huh, uh-huh, like this person here, she's definitely giving something back. I can tell she's a young person. So if you want to make me feel good, you could just like smile occasionally, look up at me, nod your head, even if you disagree, you could just kind of nod a little bit. So then I'll feel like you're listening. I'm sorry that I need it, but I do. I've been trained with young people. They give stuff back. Charlie knows. She used to be in my youth group. She's got it. Um, so what are we called to stand against is the next question. Um, I wonder how comfortable you feel when we talk about evil. When Derek was reading and he's talking about um, these like powers of the dark world and schemes and spiritual battles, it's not stuff we talk about a lot in church sometimes, is it? We don't often talk about the kind of dark side and um, we're not always comfortable about it, but Paul really wants us to engage in what he is talking about, doesn't he? He hasn't put it in there for no reason. He wants us to kind of feel confident to engage with this battle that we're in. And Paul says that the the struggle isn't against flesh and blood. But I think if I asked you and I thought about it myself, I'd be quite quick to think about all the kind of physical things that feel evil, like war and racism and poverty and slavery. We'd all probably kind of go there first because it's quite clear, isn't it, where kind of evil is at work in a way. And, um, and Paul, I think, would probably agree. Like he was beaten and flogged and imprisoned. And so he knew, he knew that evil existed in a kind of human form as well. But he is talking about the unseen reality of evil. That's what he's talking about in this passage. Um, I went to see a play quite a long time ago and um, you know have you ever been in those situations where you can't work out why you ever went and how you got there and who even asked you and who you're with but something in the moment sticks with you and to be totally honest what mostly sticks with me about this play was the pure awkwardness of Christian Amdram. Um, They were doing the Screwtape Letters which is a book by C.S. Lewis which is a brilliant book and um, they were all wonderful people in the play but it was just unbelievably awkward. <laughs> and uh, I am a very unhelpful person to have in those situations because my natural tendency is just to giggle and to laugh. So never catch my eye if something goes wrong up here because I will be desperately trying to hold myself together. And that was, that's my main memory of watching the Screwtape Letters is that I was just trying so hard to not laugh or do anything that would be unhelpful. You can imagine how much Bob enjoys living with me, that if anything goes wrong, I just burst into giggles straight away, which isn't his natural response always. Um, Anyway, so the play was, um, it's about, if anyone hasn't seen it or read it, it's about a sort of apprentice demon and his uncle teaching him how to sort of stop people coming to faith or following God or whatever it is. So it's kind of a really interesting plot, and it is actually a great book. Um, But the one thing that I do actually really, really remember from this play is the demons kind of teaching the other one that there's two strategies that the devil has that he talked about. And one is if he can make you overestimate the work of the devil, then he can totally distract you from what God is actually doing himself. If he can make you so focused and so fearful 
of, of the enemy and of evil, then actually somehow it kind of grinds us to a halt in what we're doing because we're afraid. And the other strategy that I remember them sort of playing out in this play is if we underestimate him, if we sort of say, oh, he doesn't really exist, he's not really doing anything, like we don't need to worry because then we're not actually going to stand firm and armor up and be ready when the time comes that we need to fight the fight. So I don't want anyone here to be like freaked out by the time <laughs> they finish today, because I've gone on and on about this enemy that we're standing firm against. But I also don't want us to kind of be in a position where we don't even recognize there is anything happening that isn't, that isn't good, because actually the devil is desperate to overthrow God's kingdom. That is what he wants to do. And so we've got to be really, um, really aware of that, I think. So. Um, I haven't got time to go into all the different areas where we might feel the attack or might sort of see the schemes, but there's one thing that I really want to talk about today. So um, verse 11 says, put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. What are the schemes of the devil? Well, for us Greek scholars in the room, I'm not actually one, um, the devil in Greek means slanderer or liar. So there's your big clue as to what one of his main schemes is. He lies. He twists the truth. He plants doubt. And he is a liar. He's a slanderer. Can he make you doubt the word of God in your life? Can he get you to question who God really is, what his story is, what his plan is for you? I don't know if you guys remember the story of Adam and Eve, I'm sure you do, where the sneaky serpent comes up to Eve. Just before that, God's told them his plan, his love, talked them through the garden, and this sneaky serpent comes up to Eve and says, did God really say, did he really say that? Straight away, he's trying to plant that seed of doubt in Eve's mind as to whether God actually said what he said he said. And also, within that, then he begins to try and take away from the truth of who God really is. It's subtle, but it's there. He wants Eve to start believing that God isn't really who he says he is, and he didn't really say what he said. And you guys know what happens in that story. You know the outcome of Eve believing and acting on a lie from the slanderer. What about when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness in Luke? You know, he goes out into the desert for 40 days and the devil kind of comes at him with these sort of three temptations, these three questions. But within those questions are, are these planting of lies, right? And so he kind of basically says, if you really are the son of God, so he's sort of acknowledging that maybe he is, but he's trying to plant that doubt in his mind. And the thing that I think is so crazy about this moment is like a few verses before in chapter three, Jesus is baptized and the heavens are open and God's audible voice is like, this is my son whom I love. Has anyone else had that at their baptism, that the heavens open and God's audible voice comes down? No, I don't think so. I've never met anyone. I haven't. And yet, the devil still has a go. Like, he still tries to trick Jesus, to plant doubt in his mind, to lie to him. Even though, it's like, how? Like, why would you even try? Heaven's just open. The voice of God was, like, audible for everyone to hear. And he still has a go. So let me tell you, he's going to have a go with you. You know, if he's stupid enough to have a go with Jesus after that moment, he clearly isn't worried about who he's going to try it with. So I wonder what lies might be familiar for you. Does that phrase, did God really say, 
Does that feel like it echoes anything in your mind ever? Or are you really who God says you are? I don't know. Um, but what I do know is you've got to wake up to the schemes. You can't kind of lie sleepily hoping it won't happen to you. You've got to be alert and awake. You've got to be practical and assertive. It's very easy when we sit in church week after week to be like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, that's cool, yeah, I agree, I agree, and then just head home and nothing changes. It's got to change. You can't allow the lies to limit the life that God's called you to have. I, um, this is my last book reference, I promise. <laughs> so John Mark Comer, he's a pastor in Oregon, I think. He has written a new book called um, Live No Lies, And in that, he talks quite a lot about all this stuff. But one thing that he said that really stood out to me is he has like a journal, and in the journal, on every page that he has a kind of lie that he realizes is being whispered to him, he writes the lie down, and then he just prays for scripture. He prays for truth to to be his like rebuttal when the lie comes. And um, so I think slowly over time, he's built this like big old journal up with kind of scriptural truth to say, no thanks, I'm not listening to that. And that's what Jesus does when the devil tries to tempt him in the desert. He's got scripture right there to say, no thanks, not falling for that one. So I'd encourage you, think about how are you actually going to practically manage these little sneaky lies or the big ones that are trying to take away from the truth of who God is and who you are. I think the last time I um, spoke on this passage, I was in Nepal, which was really fun. And um, I ended up, again, a random situation, I ended up thinking I was just going to like a little youth group to speak to them about the armor of God. And um, I didn't realize, number one, that the youth in Nepal are not 14, 11 to 18. They're like 16 to like 35. And I was there as a 20-year-old who'd been a Christian for like five minutes in this room full of people and also when I rocked up there was a huge banner saying like the Dulacal Youth Conference special guest Tabby as was Evans and uh, so I was terrified I couldn't believe I thought I was going to do this little sit down session with a bunch of young people anyway but in that time one of the most amazing moments was when we all wrote down on sort of like paper arrows the lies that we'd been believing about ourselves. We kind of got them out into the open. We wrote them down and then we threw it away and scrunched up whatever we did. And it was like the moment where the spirit just came. It's like the truth will set you free. It was like something shifted in the room because everybody got real. Everybody said, yeah, this is something that I actually have partnered with. I believe, I've believed this. I allow this to limit the person that I am and the person that God is. So I, yeah, really encourage you to actually take it seriously and think, what are the lies that I'm believing? So the last question, how are we called to stand firm, to fight? I don't think that the kind of fight or the necessary need to stand firm is an optional extra. I think Paul is pretty clear, like you are going to be in a fight. There are going to be moments that you have to stand firm. It's kind of part of our Christian walk. And um, the first top tip I've got for you is from verse 10. And it says, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. So the top tip is it's in him. This isn't a striving thing that you do alone, that you kind of work yourself up to, that you prove you're good enough to God by doing it. It's in him. And I think the training camp for us learning about standing firm is going to be sat at Jesus' feet, knowing him, letting ourselves just relax in his presence, listening to him, growing. 
In John 15, you guys might know it well, the, um, the true vine, Jesus commands that we remain in him, doesn't he? He says that in him will bear fruit. And that's how we walk out our faith. That's how we stand firm is that we do it in him. Paul tells us in Romans 8, 37, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You're not a conqueror on your own. Definitely not more than a conqueror. There's this amazing supernatural thing that happens when we come into relationship with Jesus. However weak and defeated we feel, he says, in me, you are more than a conqueror. Isn't that cool? This is one of those moments where you smile. Yeah? Mm -hmm. Good, great. Okay, I think it's cool. So, there's a really amazing list of armor in this passage, and... um, I've tried to do lots of research, try to understand more about all the armor and the context and everything else. And there's lots of clever stuff out there. And one of the things that really struck me that I'd never seen before was the like Christ-centeredness of the armor. The like kind of it was it's so full of the gospel. Everything we're told to wear is like is like Jesus, basically. You know, it says um, it says in the the um, sorry, I've lost my train of thought. It says to put on the breastplate of righteousness. And whose righteousness do we wear? It's not rhetorical. Someone shout it out. Yes, Jesus, Jesus' righteousness. That's what we wear when we put on the breastplate of righteousness. We just put on Jesus' righteousness. It's not your right standing that you've somehow earned through brilliant. Bible reading at 6 a.m. every day is Jesus' righteousness. You just put it on and it fits. Um, and then, you know, like the helmet of salvation, it's, it's salvation that he won for you, isn't it? He died, he rose again, and he's like, hey, you can wear this salvation, this absolute certainty of where you're going and the victory that you stand in. That is so cool, isn't it? You haven't got to even work hard. Just literally put on the salvation that he's won. The same with the righteousness. The same with all of it. These shoes that we're wearing, um, what does it say? The shoes that are fitted with the readiness of the gospel. It's his gospel. It's his victory that we wear, isn't it? So we've got these like peaceful feet that's standing firm in the foundation that Jesus has already won for us. So there's no striving. You haven't got to work super, super hard to sort of squeeze into some armor that doesn't fit you because it fits you because Jesus won it for you. And I think that's incredible. I want to talk about two pieces of armor, if that's okay. And the first is the belt of truth. So apparently, according to all my research, uh, this was kind of underneath all of the other garments is where they'd wear it. And um, things would like be tucked into it for a long walk. The sword would sit in it. Um, and it was kind of a center for everything else to fit around, apparently, in, in the kind of Roman soldier's uniform. So it's basically foundational to the whole outfit, the belt of truth. So here's my question. Is truth your foundation? Is it central in your life? Is the truth of who God is, who he says you are, what he says we're called for, is that the center of your life? Does everything fit and sit on the truth of who God says he is and therefore who you are? I don't know if anybody else feels like this, but I feel like truth is kind of under attack. <laughs> you know, like if you like sociology, we, apparently we're now living in like a post-truth society where there's no value for it anymore. And um, doesn't that sound like a scheme of a slanderer to you? To bring the even like essence of what truth is into question. And yet, 
you know, I, I mean, I work with young people and, and all the time they're trying to create truth in their own knowledge of the world or experience of it or whatever. And I think everybody is, you know, like if you haven't got truth and you're trying to create it, aren't you? And yet we don't have to do that because the person we follow is truth. Our foundation is Jesus. And sometimes it is hard. It's try hard to understand, like, what is the truth for this moment? What does it mean? But I just call you back to that image of you sit with Jesus. You sit with him because he is your foundation. He is where everything else can be built on, just like that belt of truth. And I think that then connects to the shield of faith. And again, in my research, I want everyone to realize how much research I've done into this armor. That's why I keep saying it. Um, these were these really big shields that would cover like the whole body, not like a little one, one of those big ones. And apparently the Romans spent time figuring out all the different layers of the shields so that it would actually extinguish those fiery arrows that the enemy would shoot. And so these shields were well made to lift up and to kind of defend against this fire coming towards them. And um, so for us, what does it look like to actually physically sometimes lift up the shield of faith and be like, no thanks to those lies that are coming in? What does it look like? And um, I was thinking about when I first became a Christian, um, I became a Christian when I was about 19, and it was an amazing moment actually of meeting God. But then I quite quickly got involved in like youth work and church and just kind of got stuck in because I thought it's what you were supposed to do. And, um, and, and often... Like, even just driving to the youth group or something, these lies would just come at me. Like, you are not qualified for this. Your life was a mess. Here are all the, like, 50 million things you've ever done wrong that disqualifies you from talking to young people about Jesus, or anybody, for that matter, or just even sat in the room with all these much holier people. And I realized after a while, this was not the voice of God. (laughs) This didn't sound like the guy who'd called me in the midst of all the mess and chaos that I was in. And um, so for me, faith suddenly said, "Uh uh-uh, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed my sin and my mess from me. That was my shield of faith. It was like, no way are you going to have the ground of reminding me of the mess I was in when the fact that I was in the mess when God called me. He's not offended by it. He wasn't bothered by it in the sense it didn't stop him wanting to use me. That was my lie. I wonder if any of you have that, that he kind of taunts you with things that you've done or sins that you're kind of struggling with to say you're disqualified. Why are you even going to church? Why are you even trying to talk about Jesus? What about like lies about your future. Does anybody else struggle with that? Like, is God really going to provide what you need? Is he really going to guide you into the next stage of your life? Whatever it is. But faith would say, he's got plans to give me a hope and a future. Even if sometimes our experience is struggling to match up, lifting the shield of faith says, no, he has plans for me that are good and full of future, hope and future. What about, this is, I think, this might be true for everyone. You might not want to admit it, but nearly everyone I speak to, this is true for. The moment where God, not God, that's not him at all, where the slanderer sneaks in and says, are you really good enough at that? Are you actually gifted enough to get up and share your thoughts about what this passage says? Are you actually good enough with people to share about Jesus? Are you actually, whatever, enough? This question constantly, are you good enough? Are you strong enough? Are you wise enough? Are you beautiful enough? Whatever it might be. 
And lifting your shield of faith says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Because it's not about me. It's about him. So I can do all things. That's the shield of faith for that lie. So I wonder for you guys, what are the lies and what's your shield of faith? You know, how are you rebuffing it? How are you lifting this enormous shield that covers you from all that fiery attack? But you've got to have something to say. Faith says, whatever it might be. And I think lifting the shield of faith, putting on the belt of truth, the helmet of salvation, for, is formed in a habit. The Spirit empowers it, but you've got to do it every day. You've got to get into a habit of putting it on and, and thinking about it every day. A quick aside, I also find that I can lift my shield of faith in worship because you're declaring who God is, aren't you? Like over and over, this is who you are, this is who you are, this is who you are. And so suddenly that shield that might feel like your arms are weak, you can just put it up. So, um, yeah, finally and very briefly, the kind of almost end of the passage, Paul talks about prayer, which is another habit you have to form and the Spirit will invade and empower and he says, and I and pray in the spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for the Lord's people. Part of putting on the armor is just praying, isn't it? It's just full dependence on Jesus, saying, you've done enough, Jesus. I, I'm in relationship with you. I'm talking to you. But Paul says, like, pray all the time. Pray in every situation, in all kinds of forms, in tongues, song words, whatever it might be, and don't give up. Don't stop praying. And, he says, which echoes the whole call of Ephesians about us being called to be a united church, pray for each other. Everybody's trying to hold their ground. Everybody's standing firm. So pray for the people. Pray for the people around you. So, to conclude, Jesus is the armour of God. How cool is that? Just put on Jesus. Put him on. Yes, yes, thank you so much. Someone clapped. In Nepal, I had a tambourine shimmer across the thing but I'll take a clap anyway (laughs) um, as God has said to many and us of his mighty men and women when we're called into battle he says I'm with you right that's it that's the promise that's all we need to step in stand firm because God goes with you our best defense thank you Tabby